You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. Christmas presents are exciting. Do you remember what you'd say is the best gift you've ever received at Christmas? I asked my kids this question, and here's what they said. My six-year-old loved her little talkie doll that could talk, blink, and not much else. Cost a whopping $110 after tax, and it lasted for a solid eight months before it found its way to the back of her closet. My nine-year-old said his favorite was the popular fantasy book series, six books in all, each getting progressively longer. The set cost $58 and lasted eight weeks before it lived its final dust-filled existence on a shelf. Now my tween loved the Brainy Putty Collection that cost $32 and lasted a measly eight days before it went to live in our carpet. Finally, my teenage son wanted the ultimate drone with a 4K camera. It cost the most and lasted the shortest amount of time. I'd like to say it lasted eight minutes, but no, it was eight seconds, which is only impressive in bull riding. As exciting as those gifts are, what if there was a gift at Christmas that was far better? In fact, so much better that it makes these look like, well, toys. What if this gift was worth so much that no one could buy it for you, nor could you afford it? What if it was something of extreme value, like, say, life itself? And what if this gift was given through the birth of a baby who became our paid in full? That's the gift offered to all. It costs us nothing, him everything. It lasts just a bit longer than eight seconds, eight days, eight weeks, or even eight months. It lasts forever. So any guesses on what we're going to talk about this morning? When I first saw that video, my first thought, being quite honest with you, was what in the world happened to that drone? Eight seconds? What's the story behind that? But the real story with that is the story that we look at today. And that's the reality that in Jesus, we have these enduring gifts, these enduring presents from him. If you're new to grace, once again, welcome. And if you have not been with us these last handful of weeks of Advent, we started this series looking at the reality of hope, that that is a present, that is a gift that we have from Jesus. And the hope that we have as his followers is not this ephemeral, that might kind of happen hope. It is an expectant hope. It is a confident hope that we worship and know and follow a God who always keeps his promises, who always does what he says he will, we, he will do. This hope we have is tangible, it's real, it's enduring, and it's expectant. And then last week, we looked at the gift of Savior. What does it mean that Jesus is our Savior? What does he save us from? And what does he save us to? This next week, next Sunday, we will look at joy. And Sean Rowley will help us see how is the gift of joy an incredible gift that we get to experience through Jesus. And then on Christmas Eve, we'll look at the gift of worship. But really, the gift that ties all these gifts together, the gift that is the greatest present from Jesus, is the presence of Jesus 
himself. Jesus as Emmanuel, our God with us. And that's what we're going to look at here this morning. What, what is the significance of that? There are a number of you who, as Jesus followers, you've heard and read this Christmas passage. You've heard sermons on Emmanuel, God with us. And I hope that as we once again think through the reality of what this means for your life and mine, that you are blessed all over again and enriched by the reality, by the truth, that Jesus is God with us. So if you have a Bible, please open to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to go right back to the passage we looked at last week, verses 18 through 25. If you were not with us last week, we encourage you to go back and listen to this because this sermon builds on itself. So I'd go all the way back to the first week of hope. But now we're going to jump back to this same passage we looked at last week and look at what it means that God is with us. So here we go. The Christmas story, Matthew 1, 18 through 25. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. So let's begin to to work our way back through the passage. And really, this is where we're going. These two verses. Because to remind you, if you were gone last week or if you were not aware of this, this is a quote from the Old Testament. And what Matthew, the gospel writer here, is doing is he's reaching 700 years back into world history, into biblical history, and he is pulling this prophecy, this promise from God forward and saying, this is the fulfillment of that promise, that there is one who will come who will be called Emmanuel, and he truly will be God with us. And there are multiple places throughout the Bible where it declares Jesus to be God himself. If we fast forward just a little bit in the Gospel of Matthew, this will give you one such example. This is another quote from Matthew that reaches back to the Old Testament, reaches back to that same book, Isaiah, reaches back 700 years. And this is actually describing the promise of the one who would come who would foretell the coming of the Messiah. This is actually about John the Baptist. But look at what Matthew does here. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now, if we go back to where this is quoted in Isaiah chapter 40, in that passage, it is declaring that the Lord is none other than Yahweh, the personal name that the Jews had for God. The Lord is Yahweh. What Matthew is saying here is the Lord is Jesus. A plus B equals C. Jesus is Yahweh. It is a profound statement, once again, that Jesus is 
God. And this is so fundamentally important for us to appreciate and get our hands around. And sometimes we can say that and kind of move on, but there is so much significance here for us to do some business with. God with us. And this is what differentiates and separates Christianity from every major world religion and every other worldview or belief system. What you will hear people mistakenly say is that all religions basically end up in the same place. Absolutely not true. Because Christianity, the Bible, what we believe as Jesus followers, this is the only religion in the world that declares Jesus was not a little g-god. He was not a prophet or a messenger. He was not an avatar. He was not a god manifestation. He was God. No other religion says that about their founder or their major leader. Christianity is the only one that declares Jesus isn't a God. He is the God. And this is the bullseye of Christianity. This is what it all boils down to. Was that baby in the manger simply a baby or was that God in the flesh? Because that absolutely matters. Which takes us back to last week. Because names mean something in the Bible. They mean something to us today, but names in the Bible spoke about your purpose, your calling, your potential, said something about your character, who you were, and who was Jesus in what we looked at last week? Well, he's Savior. His name literally means, Jesus means, the Lord saves. And that identity is so important. Because only God can save us from brokenness and save us to the life that he has created us for and called us to. And think about this with me for a minute. If we fast forward in the Gospel of Matthew to Matthew chapter 9, this same story is captured in Mark chapter 2 and in John chapter 5. Jesus comes to this paralytic, a man who has been paralyzed his whole life, And what's the first thing he says to him? Your sins are forgiven. Which is an astounding statement. Because what does that say about who he is? I mean, think of it this way. Say you and a friend are getting in an argument. And it gets so heated that you punch your friend in the nose. Bam! We won't talk about what kind of friend you are. We'll park that for a minute. But you hit your friend in the nose. And I walk up, and I see that, and I say, I forgive you for that. You'd say, what? so? I mean, what? Who do you think you are? But what does Jesus constantly do? What does he say to the paralytic? Friend, your sins are forgiven. Scripture clearly teaches that only God can forgive sins. And the reason God can forgive sins is he has the authority to do so because he has the means and ability to actually do something about it. I mean, if I walked up and said that to you, you'd say, who do you think you are? But Jesus walks up to someone and says that he's proclaiming exactly who he is. He is God. He has the authority to forgive and he has the means by which to forgive. He has the ability to do something about it. He truly is the Savior. Think of it this way. 
Christianity, what the Bible teaches, what Jesus is asserting here, to many people is profoundly offensive. Because Jesus is asserting, the Bible proclaims, the Bible declares that he is the only way to God because he is God. That all religions are not created equal. This is the only path, the only way into right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Why? How does that work? What's different with what the Bible teaches and who we worship Jesus as his followers to be than any other religion that's out there? If we go back to this reality of Jesus being Savior, it means there's a problem. There, there is brokenness in us that we need to be saved from, which the Bible calls sin. It is the bent and inclination of our hearts. It's, it's where we all start. It's more than just behavior. It's about choices. It's about motives. It's about thoughts. It's about values. It's like a fatal illness that we have. And I in no way mean to make light of this. Some of you, you're going toe-to-toe with this right now. Others of you know people, friends or family, who are right there or who have been there. But imagine you get a diagnosis that isn't the real diagnosis of what's going on with you. I mean, you know your body, you know something very seriously is wrong, and you go to a doctor and the doctor says, well, you know, just sleep some more, get more rest, take lots of fluids, and, and this will get better. And so you go to another doctor, and that doctor basically says the same thing. And then you get a third opinion, and this doctor says, you have a fatal illness. We've run the tests, and fluids and rest are not going to do it for you. If we don't address this, it will take your life. Would you declare that person then to be intolerant? Because they're telling you their diagnosis is the correct one? Or would you say, rather than being offended, I've got to figure out if you're right. Either you're right, or you're wrong, or you're misled, or you may even be lying to me, but this isn't about you necessarily being arrogant or exclusive. This is about me trying to figure out if you're right. But see, empty religion comes along with our brokenness, with our sin problem, and says, oh, you know, you just need to take a pill for that. You know, do this, don't do that. Adapt this, adopt this code or this creed or live according to this morality and that's going to that's gonna take care of your sin problem. But the Bible declares, no, God doesn't go deep enough. That's like taking a pill for a fatal illness. That's like taking Advil for cancer. It's not going to work. Or our culture says, well, you know what? Just try harder. Just be a good person. You know, God grades on a curve and as long as you're a good person and you you're doing your best, then, then good is good enough. But once again, that's minimizing the real problem. That's behavior modification. But does that really meaningfully, deeply change you? And the answer is no. Or our culture goes to the other extreme and says, well, there really is no problem. I mean, all religions go to the same place, end up in the same place. And, you know, who's to say what's right and wrong? And, you know, is there really one way? I mean, come on, Really? I'll just, I'll just figure this out for myself. And that doesn't do business with what's really going on either. We look to these functional saviors 
but they don't really do it because the heart of the issue is a matter of the heart. We don't need to take, we don't need to take a pill and goods and, and hope things get better. This is about the need for a transfusion that completely changes us and gives us life. This is about getting a new heart. This is about the core of us changing. This is about changing from the inside out, not from the outside in like religion and other things try to, try to make us do. This is about a need for God. Only God can save us from the brokenness that's in each and every one of us. Trying harder won't do it. Ignoring it won't do it. Religion will not do it. Those don't affect and produce a deep enough change. We have to have God with us. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. So let's look at the next piece. God with us. Okay. So when you think of God, when you think of his presence, what do you think of? Well, because we anchor what we believe in the Bible, what does the Bible have to say about this? Well, let's go back to the second book in the Bible, almost back to the very beginning. What does Exodus 13 tell us? Well, we remember that based on history, Israel was being enslaved by the Egyptians, the entire nation was, and God promised to emancipate them, to free them, and so he actually does, and that's all captured for us in the book of Exodus, and then he begins to lead them to freedom, and this is how he led them. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so they could travel by day or by night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Can you imagine what that must have looked like? God manifesting his presence as a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire? Could it have looked something like this? We, we don't know. But this was the presence of God. Or how about this? On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. And everyone in the camp trembled. Yeah, because this pillar of cloud, this pillar of fire had now led them to the base of this huge mountain called Mount Sinai. And then this is what happened. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord, God, descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. Can you imagine what this would have been like? Can you imagine coming just by way of example to the base of Mount Hood and it begins to shake and there's an earthquake and there's thunder and there's lightning and there's smoke and there's fire? Could it possibly have looked something like this? I don't know. But it's pretty remarkable. But let's continue on. How else has God revealed himself to the people? Well, eventually, they're going to come to the promised land, but as they're in transit... Now it describes this as happening. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So God now came to the people in the middle of their camp in this tent called the tabernacle. Could it have looked like this? 
How amazing, how incredible must that have been like? The presence of God among the people. And let's just look at one more. This fast forwards to the book of Ezekiel and it describes this. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. Could it have looked something like this? This is a picture of Hurricane Katrina when it made landfall years ago. Category 5 hurricane, the largest hurricane and most powerful hurricane to have ever hit landfall in our country, caused almost $100 billion worth of damage. Can you imagine if you were the one taking this picture as this is coming towards you? What do all these images have in common? They describe the presence of God. So what images, what emotions come to mind as as you think about God manifesting his presence, showing himself to his people in this way? Words like overwhelming, awesome, incredible, maybe terrifying, amazing. Now, what emotions does it evoke when this passage today describes God coming to us like this? I toyed with trying to get a picture of one of our staff and seeing if you could guess who it was. But this isn't any of our crew, but it's a picture of a very cute baby, right? You know, I've heard many grandparents say that babies are God's reward for not killing your kids as teenagers, right? But is there, is there, yeah, you can tell the grandparents are, amen. So is there anything more approachable, more vulnerable than a baby? More relatable, more inviting? I mean, you want to pick that, that little guy up and, and hold him and love him. And this is how God comes to us? Yep. In fact, the picture of the entire Bible is of a God who is looking to get closer and closer and closer and closer and closer to his people. I mean, think with me about this reality for a moment. For those of you who have been with us this last year, just last month, really, we were in our Genesis series, and when we started that series in the early fall here, we saw the reality that God created humanity to be with him. It was this incredible picture of Adam and Eve in the garden in close intimacy, close proximity with God, walking with God in the cool of the day. I mean, it's just an incredibly beautiful picture of being as close to God as you can possibly be. And then they chose to disobey God and to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And sin and brokenness and death and disease enters the world at that point and God casts them out of the garden. He drives them out because he is now going to enact this rescue plan. He's not going to leave humanity in a broken place. He is going to fix things, even though we are the ones who broke everything. And now you have this picture of God leading his people out of Egypt, a 
eventually to the promised land. And then he descends on Mount Sinai. And then he comes right among them in the tent, in the tabernacle. And eventually when they're led to the promised land, they will build this temple. And God comes and resides there. And then God comes as a baby in Jesus, which is what we celebrate here at Christmas time. But he wants to get even closer than that. Look at what Jesus himself declares. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. This God comes to us, and he stays with us. Once again, Christianity is the only worldview that teaches that God himself through his Holy Spirit, comes and lives inside of you. That's how close he wants to get to you and to me. Because at the end of the day, life is about knowing him and experiencing him and enjoying him. That's what you and I were created to have. This is one of my most favorite verses in the Bible because it absolutely cuts to the chase and the bottom line. Now, this is eternal life, to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And just so we're on the same page, that word know is not an intellectual knowing. It's so much more than that. This very word is used to describe a man and a woman as husband and wife knowing each other in every possible intimate way. That is what it means for you to know God and for God to know you. Because this God is not a creed, he's not a code, he's not a morality, he is personal. And he wants to get personal with you. So has he? Because it starts with a defining moment in your life. You may not remember the date or the year or the time, that's okay. But there is a defining moment in your life when you receive him into your life. When you receive him as your God, as your Lord and Savior. And then from there, you embark on this journey of knowing him and experiencing him and developing this intimacy and closeness with him because he wants you to see him. He wants you to experience him. He wants you to know him. He wants you to to have an intimacy with him. It's vibrant and deep and consistent and powerful. So, for those of you who know him, how has he gotten personal with you recently? If you're like me, sometimes I struggle to answer that question. Because like any relationship, it has its ups and its downs. Not because of anything God has done or isn't doing, but really because of me. He promises to always be at work in my life, to always be advancing his kingdom, to always be revealing himself to me, inviting me to know him better. But sometimes, quite frankly, I I miss it. Can't see it. I'm too close to it or not close enough to it. So some months ago, my wife and I were talking about this very reality and what the Lord was teaching us and doing in us. And she suggested that I start to keep a thankfulness journal. I've done that in various seasons of my life, but I thought, yeah, I am going to begin to do that. So not every day, but often, I will either end the day or start the day, usually end the day, by taking out this little notebook, and I'll try to think of three things 
that I'm thankful for that day. And quite honestly, there are some days where I sit there for a bit. And I'm thinking, okay, what do I have to be thankful for? And there are other days it's boom, boom, boom. I could write ten. But here's, here's three. And when I go back and I look at the answered prayer, the unexpected surprises, the way he shows up in a verse that I've memorized and then someone asks me something and I get to pass that along or something happens in my life and I remember that promise or the way he works circumstances where by way of example, I say, Lord, I just would love to tell someone about you and all of a sudden I find myself talking to my auto mechanic about Christmas Eve and about the Lord. How in the world did that happen? Just fix my oil pan gasket, right? But now we're talking about Jesus because I asked. And he answered. You had that experience lately? Where he, through the circumstances of your life, through the prayers he's answered, you see his hand, you see his work, you experience him, you feel him. Boy, I hope every Sunday you gather here, you experience and feel him speaking to you, growing you, challenging you, confronting the brokenness in your life, freeing you from that, encouraging you, reminding you of his promises. And we could go on and on, but as I was writing in this thankfulness journal, I was reminded of this journey of the last several months. It was some months ago that Daniel Congdon, our producer, mentioned to me that it was now the season where God was going to be transitioning him. And I remember thinking, holy cow, there are not a lot of producers running around out there for churches like us. In fact, when Daniel told us he would be transitioning, there were at least four other churches in our area, our size or larger, who were looking for producers and who had been looking for a long time. And I thought, how in the world are we going to make this happen? And I'm very hopeful in telling you that um, we've interviewed a number of people over the course of the last several months, and I'm hoping that we get to a point where we're ready to hire someone next, next month. We're pretty far down the road with two people in particular. But if you would have told me that six months ago, quite honestly, I would have struggled to believe that. But I can honestly tell you now, some months later, that we have interviewed or talked to more people who are interested and qualified to be our next producer than almost any other role we've had to fill in the last 13 years we've been here at Grace. But I couldn't have told you that months ago. I was very concerned. And then last week we said thank you to our Terry, who's also transitioning as our children's ministry leader. And again, when Terry let us know that she would be going back on the mission field with her husband, Philip, I thought, boy, it's really difficult to find a gifted shepherd like a Terry McCurley to love and care for her kids. And we're just not going to do that for anyone. We love our kids. So who's this person going to be? And then to be so gratified that our Rhonda Patrick, who was our children's ministry leader before Terry, was interested in stepping back into that. And through some department consolidation and hiring some other roles, we're able to make that happen. Or even with worship leader. We've actually had a transition with our worship leaders. First time in the years I've been here, when we've had a worship leader transition, it's been a long process. For those of you who have been here, it took us two years to find Jay McKinney. And when Jay told me that he was going to be transitioning, I thought, Lord, really? I don't want to go two more years looking for a worship leader. And God rose Sarah up from among us. And now she's leading us. 
And all this I've captured through the months through this thankfulness journal, being reminded of God's work and his faithfulness. And I, I promise for as much as I know, this is the last transition goodbye, thank you announcement I'm going to make for a while with our team. <laughs> Hope it's a really long time before we do that. I know it's been a lot of transition, but, but God's faithful. God answers prayer because he's personal. And he wants to get personal with you and me. But it's not just us as individuals. It's also us as a community. These are Jesus' last recorded words we have before his death, burial, and then resurrection and his ascent to heaven. This is the last thing he said to his disciples. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. But everything that precedes this Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and teaching them to obey everything commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Those are all plural directives from Jesus. This is all y'all. This is a promise to all of us. He's not just with us individually. He's with us as a community, as his body. And you intuitively get this because this is why you come to church each Sunday, whether you know it or not or the Sundays that you do choose to come. Because something happens when we gather together in corporate worship because God reveals himself to all of us in ways that you will not experience alone. And that's why it's so fundamental and so important that you take advantage of this season to invite your coworkers, your friends, your family who don't know the Lord to come and experience community, to come on Christmas Eve. Because this is the time of year when people will come to a church who have never come to a church or who maybe have been away from community who will come back to community. Please take advantage of this opportunity because he's, he's God with us. And, and we'll end with this. One of the things I'm quickly learning to look forward to with the holidays, with Christmas in particular, is that we get our kids back. Our kids are now young adults. And Jamie and I have been empty nesters since this fall. And two of our kids were back this last week. We get our third back next week. And with our two girls, with some friends they had over, we decided to do something we haven't done in a really long time. We threw in a home video. And it was so epic. Because it was when they were little kids and there were some great embarrassing moments that we got to laugh about. But we also saw this parade of celebrations and, and birthdays and Christmases. And just like that video that we saw to open our time in the Word here, I was reminded of all these gifts, dollhouses and bikes and games and, that were great gifts at the time. And every single one of them, as I watched this video from years ago, are gone now. All of them. I couldn't tell you where they are. I couldn't tell you how long they lasted. I just know they're not around anymore. But also in that video was my oldest sister and my brother-in-law, who are now gone. And also in that video was my father-in-law, who is now gone and with the Lord. And as I looked at and watched these videos and had this flood of memories, joy and loss and some grief, but a lot of fun and good memories, the one constant through all of that is the reality that we're talking about here this morning. God with us. Jesus 
is the one constant in my life that no matter what happens, no matter what comes my way, good or bad, He is with me. And if you know Him, He's with you too. So as our worship team comes and as we prepare to worship, let us once again keep in front of us this reality. The greatest present that Jesus has ever given us and that he does give us is his presence. He is God. Is he your God? Because he wants to be. So let's worship him together. Lord Jesus, thank you for the incredible promise and reality that you are God with us. Thank you that you are Emmanuel. Lord, would you remind us all over again of what that means? Would you get personal with us? Would you, through the power of your spirit, expose the the counterfeit saviors that we turn to, those things that we expect to meet the needs that only you can meet? And Lord, would you recalibrate our hearts with yours to trust you, to love you, to be thankful, and to welcome you. God, do your work in us because you are with us. And we believe that and we celebrate that now in your name. Amen. As we prepare to go, I would like to pray one of the Apostle Paul's prayers over you as we prepare to go from here. So if it'll help you soak it in and concentrate, would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? And let me pray this over you. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for those of us who believe. Lord, we do believe. And it is in that power that we go from here in the power of your Holy Spirit to proclaim to this world around us that you are the way, you are the truth, you are the life, you are the source of true joy. And we thank you that you are God with us. We thank you for this sweet time we've had to be together and to be with you. And we thank you that you are the God who keeps his promises. We love you. And we pray all this in your name. And God's people said, amen. So go live for him. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.